Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David Blanchflower with us, and this is so important. He is at Dartmouth College as well, a former member of, of the Bank of England shop, and he joins us now with his wonderful work on labor economics. But Danny, what I want to, you know, I know John's got eight ways to go here. You never know why things change. You never know what the outside event is like a virus. But all of a sudden, we're framing weaker growth. We're framing this, that, and the other thing. And your study of economics, when this is over, do you bounce back or is there a lasting weakness to it? Well, normally we bounce back and we bounce back pretty quickly. What's happened over the last decade is we bounce back really slowly. And on some measures, we didn't bounce back at all. So that's about the uniqueness of what happened in 2008. Um, the question now is, what, as you rightly say, what's normal? And the, and, and the evidence suggested that things were looking pretty darn good at the beginning of the year. Wage growth in the U.S. and the U.K. picked up to 4% or so. And it, it looked like things were going back to normal. And now, during 2019, they turned back the other way. So... Um, the world has the world clearly changed in 2008, especially the labor market, um, and it's not clear where we're going um, in the future. And obviously, the concern is, what weapons do you have if this, if and when this turn, turnaround comes? So I think that's the that's the thing going forward. How much how much monetary room is there to do things, and what are the fiscal folks going to do? Um, and in the UK, it looks like very quickly they've backtracked on on fiscal space. So I just think. Watch this space. Um, it's going to be a, a pretty rough road for a few years. And, and at the very best, growth is going to be weak. And that may be uh, overly optimistic. Danny, it's been really difficult to understand the reaction function of the Bank of England over the last couple yeah. of months. Much more straightforward to understand the shift of the reaction function over at the Federal Reserve. A massive change right. from Chairman Powell in the last 12 months. And to make it simple, Danny, they're basically telling us if things get better, we won't step in and cap the upside. But if things get worse, we're ready to do more. Your thoughts on what we've heard from Chairman Powell? Yeah, I mean, I, I've said on your program many times that I thought, I thought that the rate rises were all in error and they're paying the consequences of that. Uh, and the consequences, I think, um, are really the following. Um, the, the Fed has realized that their forecasts are completely hopeless. And essentially, they've given up forecasting inflation, uh, unemployment, GDP growth. Um, and essentially, what they're doing is they're sitting there waiting for some bad news to come in. As you rightly say, if the good news comes in, well, OK, that's great. And if the bad news comes in, we're going to react to it. But I guess the right thing to think is that by that point... It's too late. Well, so I think that's a really big worry. And that's what's being priced into the market if you take a look at the yield curve, which is flattening yet again. Now, the flattest since November, I'm um, just looking at the 210 spread in the U.S., and I'm trying to figure out is the implication here. The Fed's going to make an error by not moving soon enough, or even worse, right. they don't have the ammunition. Well, both, <laughs> right? So, so they, the, there's, there's not that much room to move. Um, and obviously, the question is, what, what would the Congress actually do? And what would, the, what would they be able to do if there was some downturn? Um, I, I think the markets don't really have confidence in Powell. They don't mm -hmm. have confidence that he knows what he's doing. Um, I mean, literally, we are in this position where they're just waiting for a bad shoe to drop. 
and the markets will obviously react to it. If some really bad data comes, obviously we'll talk about it on Bloomberg, but the markets are going to respond. So the downside possibilities are, are, are tough. Um, I mean, in some sense, think of the Bank of England decision today. Essentially, they've put off having to make a cut. But I think the obvious thing to do was to make an insurance cut. Well, it's quite clear they're going to have to going forward. But um, 72 doesn't look like they have a clue what they're up to. All sorts of questions here. Uh, Denny Blanchard with us, of course, out of Dartmouth College. And just a lot going on in the markets. Futures are negative 24. Dow futures now negative 208. Bond market, absolutely fascinating. You begin to think, John, about a 199 on 30-year bond here. What I see is a Draghi-like headline which, Danny, now we have monetary theorists giving us an x-axis, a timeline out within their forecasts. I mean, BOE cuts growth outlook, sees CPI below target until the end of 2021. What does it signal to people older in the room, Danny, that now we have governors, presidents, chairmen giving us a date way out? I mean, that's, to me, that's a new thing started by Mario Draghi a year and a half ago. Well, it is a new thing, Tom. I mean, it's, a, it's, a re- it's the realization that most of the things that they've said for several years have turned out to be completely is it, is it a realization? Uh, I don't mean to interrupt, Danny, but this is critical. Is it no. a realization they don't have a theory? They don't have a plan? They didn't listen to Blanche Flower? I, I, well, I don't know about the last <laughs> one, but I think, I, think that, I would, of course, agree with that, Tom. But of course you would. <laughs> Go figure. I think the answer absolutely is that they basically have no clue. And I often have been on your program and someone says, in the last cycle, the Fed did X. Well, that tells us absolutely nothing about where we are. We haven't, we haven't right. experienced this before. So, so they're lost and floundering. Um, and that's essentially why they've given up. I mean, they, they have literally given up because the, the economists and the, 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 the people in, within the Fed and within the Bank of England essentially have no idea what they're doing. So essentially what they've said is, okay, then let's predict that where we are will be where we'll be for a long time going forward until something else changes. And that's a dangerous position to be in because you don't have much ability to do something about it. Well, Danny, let me jump in. Because if there's one thing that they've got really wrong, it's something that you've been trying to correct them on for years. They believe that as unemployment rolled over, went through 6%, went through seven, went through five, went through four. They thought wages would pick up. They haven't. And finally, Chairman Powell, in response to that in yesterday's news conference, turned around and said, well, maybe the labour market isn't as tight as we thought it was. How key is that change, Danny? Well, that's absolutely key. And I think I've been on with you for about six years now saying exactly that. My new book is all about Here we go, the new book. Yeah, I have to. That say was that. well done. No, absolutely. I mean, the, the reality was they raised rates because of their, the Fed raised rates because their belief was that um, wages would start to pick up at, as you said, at 7%, 6%, 5%, 4%. 4%. And it hasn't done that. I mean, there was a sign of it at the beginning of the year. If you look at production and non supervisory workers' weekly wages, the growth was 4% in January. It's 2.4% today. And I was just reading the minutes at the Bank of England. This actually, it actually has now lowered its wage growth forecast and lowered its yeah. view about what unemployment Danny, is going to be. Just, so this has been the rock, what they got wrong. Just because uh, of time, we've got to go, but we'll do an extended conversation. David Blanchflower with us of Dartmouth College.
talking here uh, thousands of a move, but the two-year yield comes in with a vengeance on that GDP price index statistic, 1.8%. And John, it just misses 1.4%. You know, you do the, the nominal GDP add-up and you're well under 4%. Yeah, yield sticking south of 140 on twos, on tens, still in and around 157. Claims, I'd just say claims, rock solid still, Tom. 216 on initial jobless claims. But this ultimately goes to the conundrum, the exact conundrum we've been talking about all morning. Where is inflation, right? The jobless market, uh, the job jobs market looks really strong. You're seeing yeah. actually GDP coming in stronger mm. than expected and still under underwhelming yeah. inflation. The inflation's out at the tuition of the Booth School in Chicago. That's oh, yes, where the inflation is. is right now. How much does that cost now? A, a higher. What's, what's a year's tuition? I have no idea. At the Chicago Booth School. It, the answer is it's well earned it because you get to speak and go into a lecture hall with Randall Cross, oh, do you? the former governor of the Federal That's Reserve. That's worth system, every cent. Of course, with Booth School as well. Governor Crosser, we are thrilled to have you on today because there are so many questions about this moment. Is there any evidence that a central bank can reflate if there's a desire to increase inflation? Is that doable, short of wheelbarrows of Deutsche Marks in uh, Germany uh, <laughs> a, dec- a century ago? Well, we certainly know that there are a few countries around the world that are having high inflation, uh, Venezuela, Argentina, Zimbabwe, and a few others. So the technology to, uh, to produce inflation has not disappeared. But in most major countries, uh, inflation is quite subdued, and central banks have had a lot of difficulty getting to 2% inflation targets. And they're scratching their heads a bit about that, because normally when you have such robust labor markets, you'd see more um, wage pressure, more price pressure, and so more inflation. But they haven't seen that, and so it's a little bit of a dilemma. The new, new uh, Randall Krosner is the x-axis, and that Mario Draghi, I'm going to say 18 months ago, and now Governor Carney this morning, are going out, out, out in their guesstimates and their forecasts. Let's start with the why. Why are we going out to the end of 2021? What kind of communication is that? What kind of confidence building is that? So I think that's the, the attempt to get people to really believe that they they are truly going to meet their inflation goals. That um, This is something the Bank of Japan tr- uh, introduced relatively recently. Um, the, the U.S. Fed is actually relatively new to the party. It was only 2012 that they introduced a, a particular inflation goal. One of the challenges is almost none of these uh, central banks have been meeting uh, those, those goals. And that raises questions about whether they lose credibility with the public, with uh, market participants and others. Can they really get there? Professor, I'm struck by this idea that we're not seeing inflation in the real economy, we're not seeing wages pick up, but we're seeing incredible asset price inflation. At what point is this sort of divergence unsustainable? Well, there's no necessary reason why they would uh, why it would be unsustainable. If the fundamentals are good in the uh, for for business um, and inflation is low, that's actually a wonderful, uh, wonderful combination. Historically, that's been quite rare, uh, but we seem to be in a reasonably good spot of we have growth, not super robust growth, but reasonable growth, certainly in the U.S. and in, in many, many countries, and uh, very little inflation pressure. So that's great for savers. It's great for your, um, your average household. They don't have to worry about you know, the, the dollars or, um, or euros or whatever they're holding in their, their pocket yeah. deteriorating in, uh, in purchasing power. 
Well, I was speaking with Lisa Shallot, who's Chief Investment Officer uh, for Morgan Stanley Wealth Management, and she said this is going to become a problem, and it's sort of bumping up against this point because you have companies who are using their free cash flow and their money to buy back shares, give dividends, not necessarily invest in capital expenditures or paying up for employees or training them. And at a certain point, you're going to see this bleed out in the real economy, and we're kind of at that tipping point. What's the argument against that if you think that this is sustainable? I think that's a very important point. One of the puzzles over the last decade is with very low interest rates, both real and nominal, and with a promise to keep those interest rates low for a long time, why is it that businesses haven't stepped up investment? That's true in the U.S., U.K., pretty much globally, except except for China, uh, where they can kind of command that uh, there will be investment. And uh, so that does raise questions about the sustainability, because without investment, you won't get productivity growth, and it's going to then be harder to get sustained wage growth. And without sustained wage growth, you can't get consumption growth. So I think that's exactly the right issue to to focus on. Um, And then the key is, can we generate the confidence to get business people to invest again? Well, Randy, do you think the Fed has a role in that conundrum? Oh, for sure. And so um, central banks can make a lot of mischief. They can make people very uncertain. They can make people really pull back from being willing to invest. So what they've tried to do is be clear about what they're doing and what they're going to do going forward. That's the so-called forward guidance. But the thought was that that was going to help to, um, by making things more certain, that was going to help to provide business with more confidence about what some of their borrowing costs would be over time. As I said, we, we haven't really seen that pickup of, uh, of investment. And I think that's one of the things that uh, both have central bankers scratching their heads and have them worried because, as Lisa said, it's, it's harder to sustain recoveries, especially after well, a decade, if you're not getting investment there. Bloomberg Surveillance from New York, John Farrell, Lisa Bramowitz, and Tom Keene. We're thrilled to bring you this important dialogue in economics. Yesterday, William Dudley with us, of course, the former president of the New York Fed. Austin Goolsby with us, the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama, and Randall Krosner, uh, Goolsby's colleague at uh, Booth School, now with us, a former governor of the Fed. Randy, I want to go to the animal spirit of it all, and I would suggest anybody (laughs) of any affiliation would say it is politically unacceptable when you add inflation to this fancy statistic, real GDP. I mean, basically, we're all living in a nominal world, and nominal GDP, Mm -hmm. current GDP, really isn't all there, is it? Well, I, I, I think certainly when you put the two pieces together, the, um, uh, that number is low. But if you're getting good, solid, real GDP growth, that's fundamentally what's important to people because that's fundamentally what they'll be able to afford to buy. Uh, and, uh, well, I, I should say it's fundamentally what the economy is producing and, uh, and yeah. then uh, their, their ability to buy will be based on, uh, uh, on their purchasing power. So after adjusting for uh, after adjusting for inflation, and the U.S. has been doing reasonably well on that. Um, you know, of course, we'd always love to be growing like China, but uh, but no Western economy is is doing that. And there are very few major economies right. that are growing anywhere close to two percent as we are in the U.S. On a relative basis, very true. Randall Crosner, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate the commitment from London today, the former governor of the Federal Reserve System at Booth School, Chicago.
right now in English from the French firm BMP Paribas, Daniel Morse joins us here to assist us in a strategic idea. Daniel, have you changed anything in your investment view over the advent of the Wuhan virus? Uh, it raises the prospect that in the near term, you're more likely than not to get an underperformance of emerging market equities, whereas overall, we're expecting an outperformance of EM. So I think it is potentially a hiccup in the road. Uh, but of course, we're early in the year. And if you think about your allocations for all of 2020, it's probably not going to be too significant. But I think for the time being, it may make you want to reconsider the timing of an investment in EM, especially around EM Asia. Do you have to change your strategy? And BMP, I'm going to say uh, very collegially, has been dead on with uh, a more cautious call on economic growth. But when you see yields come in, and to Bill Dudley's interview with us yesterday, is it about global slowdown? Is it singularly about this virus in China? How do you how do you balance that again when trying to make and keep the correct investment decision? Well, I think you're right in focusing on treasury yields, which I think are a lot more sensitive to what's going on in Asia than necessarily equities. That was certainly the case when you think about uh, any parallels that there might be with, with the SARS crisis back in 2003. Uh, so I think risk haven assets have been more sensitive. Equities probably not so much. They actually weren't so much then. Uh, and then when you take into account the positive surprise that we got on U.S. GDP uh, today would suggest that what you're seeing in treasury yields, I think, is hard to justify about a concern on growth. You know, all the talk that we heard last year about a U.S. recession just, just does seem a bit silly now when you had a 2.1% growth in the fourth quarter falling on the third. Uh, so I think U.S. growth looks quite solid. Uh, so I think it is kind of markets looking for something to be worried about, or at least those people that like to worry about something. And the coronavirus seems to be the best option right now. Daniel, we're probably about 20, 25% of the way through earnings season. Any key takeaways from you? Well, absolutely. And I think it's not so much the numbers that we're going to get this quarter. We know they're going to be disappointing. You can essentially write off all of 2019. Uh, you're going to get about zero earnings growth year on year, even though, of course, we had 30 plus percent returns in the market. So you think about what kind of combination are you going to need to have for 2020, and you're certainly going to have to have much better earnings growth. So what we're really focusing on, you know, of course, it's important what the, the companies report, uh, but how big are the surprises and, and what's the guidance? Because we want to have at least some confidence in the forecast that analysts have currently for 2020 that they're going to be realized, because we don't see those earnings growth numbers. Then you start worrying about the multiples on the market, because uh, you need some earnings to support those multiples. The good news is so far uh, in terms of earning surprises it's running a bit above average so that's encouraging uh, and then that gives you uh, a positive year in your growth rate instead of the negative that had been forecasted because you've got a big enough surprise to kind of push you over that line so generally speaking it has been encouraging again it's going to look bad in absolute terms for the absolute number it's still going to be low single digits but i think the indications we're getting so far is that companies seem to be on track to putting up the numbers more or less that analysts are looking for for the whole year and Daniel, we're starting to get some of the numbers from the big tech companies, blowout numbers from Apple a couple of days ago, Microsoft last night, Facebook uh, a little bit mixed, they're trading off from pre-market. How do you view the tech sector? That's certainly been the driver of this market for as long as I think we can remember. 
Well, and I guess what's been uh, a bit of a change over the last couple of weeks, even a month or so, uh, even though, yes, you've had a dominance from the tech sector, it really explains all of the outperformance of U.S. equities versus European equities last year. Uh, if you look at the rest of the market, U.S. equities performed absolutely in line with Europe. Uh, but they've gotten really arguably ahead of themselves over the last several weeks. You've got multiples getting stretched uh, in the technology sector. So even with those good earnings numbers, and that's you know absolutely what you want to see, you know, are you willing to pay 25 times that EPS uh, when historically you've paid about 18 okay. times? So well, we're not actually worried about the earnings. It's about the multiple. Then what do you do? I mean, what's your cash balance right now? If you in a typical growth portfolio, how much cash am I holding? Well, I think there's certainly a justification to have a bit above average right now, because I think we've had, you know, obviously okay. a very good start to the year. Uh, and if you, you know, you just kind of assume something will go wrong at some point, there'll be a tweet, there'll be something, yeah. uh, mm. you know, who knows, maybe the catalyst is going to be a coronavirus and you look for a better entry mm. point. You may be getting that now in treasuries. It doesn't look like we're there quite yet for equities. Daniel Morris, thank you so much. Very valued with BNP Paribas. Thank you. Mark Mahaney, Managing Director, covering all things Internet. Really, as Tom said, the axe on the street as it relates to the Internet. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Facebook last night, better than expected EPS, but I guess some concerns about that top line. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, thanks for the intro. Thanks for the kind words. Uh, Facebook, I think the real issue wasn't so much that the expenses were greater than expected. It's that there was slightly greater than expected revenue growth deceleration. So fundamental trends did here get less, here did get less strong, did get softer. Uh, and I think that's what's um, caused mm -hmm. some concern. And uh, so the, the trick here is, if it turns out that revenue growth can stabilize as we go through 2020, we think that will happen, then the stock can materially outperform from here. But investors are going to want to see the March quarter results before they have that. At the margin, we've got greater doubt. Are they going to want to bring in new management? Mark, you've been doing no, this for years. Come on. No. Do they need new management to help Mr. Zuckerberg no, they out? Uh, no, I, I, uh, if you have good, uh, effective CEO founder types, you stick with them. Uh, there's a reason that Facebook is where it is today. And if you step back, this is a business that's going to be growing 20 to 25% with 40% plus uh, margins as, uh, as a business model. That is highly attractive. So it's about it, the strongest it, it, in the space. Market tanks today. Are you telling me it's a strong buy this morning when the market opens two minutes ago? Uh, I think your trough valuation on this is 190, so we could still see more downside here. I don't think we're going to see a lot of downside. I don't think this is a back of the truck price, but if you want, I think I would consider this see, a back that, of the minivan. See, how he does that <laughs> he at does CFA that. talk, back He's up perfect. the truck There's price. Better. So, Mark, you know, we talk about the top line drivers for Facebook, and they're multiple. There's the Facebook.com, there's uh, Messenger, there's Instagram, or IG as the kids call it, and uh, there's WhatsApp. Talk to us about kind of how you view those four growth levers for Facebook? Well, I'll give you a data point. If you look at the top most popular downloaded apps globally over the last four years, four of the five in every year have been what you just mentioned, Facebook, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, and Instagram. That's a very powerful portfolio of assets that they have. And there's still one or two. One that's completely unmonetized. That's WhatsApp. Over a billion people use it uh, on a daily basis. And then Instagram, uh, especially Instagram Checkout, I think is still relatively uh, unmonetized. So there are opportunities here. Frankly, it's 
it's it's actually been a little bit frustrating. We've been waiting for monetization of WhatsApp really for years. I don't know when it's going to happen. I'm not sure the company knows when it's going to happen. I just I would bet on a company with a billion user app asset, they can usually figure out how to monetize. It, despite the trickiness, I bet you they figure it out, and you want to be long in a, a company with that kind of greenfield opportunity. Mark, you've been covering this Internet thing since the beginning. You know, and I think the Internet and tech in general, U.S. tech in general, has enjoyed a light touch from Washington and the regulators. Do you sense that that's materially about to change? And if so, is Facebook perhaps the most uh, at risk? Yeah, Paul, I like to set up on a question now. You know, we have had greater regulation over the last two years. So just so we're clear about this, uh, yeah, Google's been paying fines to the EU now three years in a row. I think they've spent uh, about $9 billion they've sent to, to Brussels. And then last year, uh, Facebook agreed to send $5 billion to the to D.C., to the Federal Trade Commission. So we have had regulation in place, and there are large privacy-oriented regulations here in California and globally that are in, uh, that are in there. I just think when it comes to the value proposition consumers it's unchanged and to advertisers too it's unchanged therefore this you can probably count on sustained growth rates similar to current levels for the foreseeable future and valuation remains attractive mark mahaney with us rbc capital markets folks thrilled he's with us and he'll be on our podcast today mark, uh, uh, paul can we trust anyone who calls a presentation a prezzo of course it's yeah. a prezzo <laughs> yeah it's a for prezzo. mahaney it's, it's a it's prezzo yep. how is the lyft prezzo going i mean lyft did something yesterday like lay off you know x percent of people but you're, you you got some enthusiasm on lyft discuss that well, actually, our number one pick in the space is Uber. Uh, I think these okay. guys are somewhat joined at the hip. I think uh, if people start wanting to buy ride sharing, you know, I think a lot of people will buy both assets. I think uh, Uber was in particular, though, was oversold last year. And I get that there was a lot of issues around the IPO and the losses and the lockup expiration uh, and a lot of regulatory issues, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that's really set up a nice opportunity and entry point on Uber this year. I, I like Lyft, too, but I prefer Uber. In what way? in revenue my lift i mean usually when the bentley's down mark i gotta take lift <laughs> into work and it's cheaper than a taxi cab how do they make money well, uh, it turns out, based on recent disclosure, especially from Uber, that this is actually an attractive business. I want All you have to do is think about one number, 20%. Uber is growing its bookings 20%. That's its top line. And they're generating 20% EBITDA margins or cash flow margins. Okay. That's an attractive business. You don't normally see that combo. There's the Prezzo. Yeah. So, Mark, just one more on the ride sharing, because, you know, the companies that you've historically followed, not only do they have to great top line growth, but great pro profitability. Do you see a path to profitability for these uh, ride sharing companies? Oh, they better have a path to profitability. They have both committed to achieving break-even, uh, what they call EBITDA break-even in uh, 21. Uh, so they better deliver on that. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that Uber stock and Lyft stock has started to kind of move up nicely uh, year-to-date. Uber's up 25% and Lyft's up you know, over 10% because people are starting to believe them. But I think there's still yeah. some skepticism uh, about it. But if they So they better deliver on this uh, break-even. I think they can, too. And if they also, if they look at selling some of their loss generating assets. Uber just did that last week when they sold Uber Eats in India. Stock was up eight percent. I think there are other little things they can or big things they can do, like yeah. that they've got to manage down the losses. Mark Mahaney, let's turn to the elephant in the room, which is not Apple Moonshot. It's it's Amazon not. For the last I'm going to call it 14 months. It's been flattish. It has having trouble getting through uh, 2000, et cetera. Give us buy, hold, sell on Amazon and then state the next 12 month future for Mr. Bezos. 
Yeah, it's not one of our top three picks for the year because I think one of the overhangs on the stock that's led to this underperformance, especially over the last six months, has been concerned that the best days for Amazon's cloud computing business, what's called AWS, Amazon Web Services, that the best days of growth for that are behind it. Now that you've got bigger competition for Microsoft, now that the competitive field has moved to the enterprise where Microsoft is really well entrenched, I think that state, that narrative, that's what's in the market right now. Yeah. I think it's overstated. I think Amazon and AWS U.S. remains a fundamentally really impressive asset. There is nothing in software that looks like AWS, nothing that's growing 30% year over year with a right. $40 billion revenue run rate. And it says something about how well positioned Amazon is and how big that market well, is. Is it on a conference call they come out with some statements and boom, it goes Apple-like? Or is it Amazon slogging along? Which is it? I think near term it's slogging along. I think in the back half of the year, there's the chance for a, if you will, an Apple moment uh, when AWS growth uh, stabilizes. And then you start seeing the payoff from some of these investments and things like one day. So, Mark, is is there ever a scenario in your mind where they spin off AWS? Uh, they have to be forced to do that. Okay. Uh, the company, I think, has been very clear that they have no interest in uh, doing that. They see a lot of synergies in having the business together. And I don't think that's going to happen. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm calling peak reg. In other <laughs> words, I think like peak oil, peak dollar, peak reg. I, we look, we've had a lot of regulatory pressure already placed against these uh, tech giants. I think the next step almost, if you want to get worse, you have to kind of break them up. But I think the grounds, the logic for breaking them up is extremely thin. So I, don't th- I just don't think it'll happen. I think they'll see more regulation, more limitations, maybe some more fines, but breaking them up, I, I, I think that's highly unlikely to happen. So the core, the core e-commerce business, that's still a great long-term growth story, is it not? Uh, yeah, and the reason is that uh, Amazon currently accounts for, I don't know, 2% of uh, global retail sales or something like that. And so uh, that, that means that they can uh, continue to grow at, you know, kind of um, call it 3 4x overall retail sales, 15 to 20%. They can probably sustain that for the next five years. Premium growth like that is also as they expand into more markets, especially they've had some really interesting international investments. India, Brazil, Mexico are three large markets that they've only really started to get aggressive about in the last no. few years. I think that means that growth rate's sustainable. Mark Mahaney, thank you so much with RBC Capital Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> 